Hello, my friends. Rabio here. Yes, there is still room in our flame-proof shift kickassery workshop. This is a pre-conference for Essentials of Emergency Medicine. The workshop happens May 29, 2023. Cosmopolitan Hotel, Las Vegas. 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Space is limited, but you knew that because we just limit space. This is something we do. If you want to learn more, you know what? If I said you'd find that info in the show notes, would you be surprised? No, you would not. Our guest today on Stimulus Episode 99. Can you believe it? 99 is Dr. Jeff Friedel. Jeff is an emergency physician at LA County USC Medical Center, Keck School of Medicine, and he is one of the world's leading researchers on medical education. He's an expert in education theory, practical application of educational methods, and really how to learn. Today, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about threaded cognition theory. I didn't know what that was either, but you'll want to know. A key behavior that distinguishes an expert and then how that can inform when to go slow and when to rock and roll. Task switching. Is it always a bad thing? Are there times when it's no big deal? Research on gender bias in residency and what the latest tells us. Sea changes that are happening in medical education. And you know what? It ain't what it used to be. And some of that might be a good thing. We're going to get into some of Jeff's research on podcast information retention. Specifically, what's the difference in learning quality listening while driving versus sitting in a room intently focusing on just the pod? How can podcast listeners make credibility judgments about what they're listening to, right? Am I, is this like a bunch of BS or uh, it's got some street cred, it's got some bona fides. You know what? That's enough. I mean, this, be, this intro is becoming a podcast episode unto itself. Let's not get too far afield of the topic at hand, which is the show. So jumping right in, our wide-ranging and eye-opening conversation with Dr. Jeff Riddell. If you were going to learn a musical instrument, actually, do you play a musical instrument? Uh, not well. Okay. Well, that's actually even better. All right. If you wanted to play a musical instrument well, say you were starting from scratch. I ask this because I've tried this many times and I've gone through many different instruments, learning it in different ways. And I was like, oh, what is there like actually a good way to do this? Like, how would you do it? Yeah. So, there's, there's probably a whole big broad literature base about specifically teaching music, but I think there are general principles to teaching any skill that I would try to adopt, whether it's shooting free throws or, you know, casting a fly rod, whatever it is. And I think it starts with recognizing that it's difficult and recognizing in your mind that you have to push beyond your comfort zone. And so, kind of the first step is, okay, this is not going to be easy. If I'm going to do this the right way to really learn it, it's going to be hard. And that part sucks. And most people don't get over that <laughs> because a lot of things we do, they're hobbies. We want them to be fun. There's always the hump. Played guitar and violin. You get to this point. It's like, okay, this is kind of the point where it gets hard. And like, yeah, I guess appreciating that beforehand, that's a smart move. And then I think you got to set goals. You got to set well-defined goals of what you want to do and what you want to accomplish. And that can happen in conjunction with other people or with yourself. But just, just kind of practicing and playing for fun is great, but it's not going to get you to any level of expertise. What would be your goal? For example, I want to shoot 85% uh, from the free throw line in the Perfect. next two weeks. Okay. I want to be able to play this song that my wife loves at our 50th wedding anniversary in front of all these people. Very specific, like here's what I want to accomplish with this thing that I'm doing. So, specific goal rather than just, I want to learn how to play the harpsichord. Yeah, right? Because what does that mean? To me, that means I can strum it two times, make a fun noise, my kids like it, we're happy. To a concert harpsichordist, if that's a thing, it's, a, it's a very different. So, to be clear, like you can do these things and play piano and have fun and probably learn a little bit and be okay. What I'm talking about specifically is developing expertise in that thing. If you want to be the best or very good or you know, develop expertise in it, then the deliberate process practice that I'm talking about is probably helpful. That was always my failing. <laughs> Those things like, oh man, it'd be really cool to play violin. And you know, I'd play it for 
for a while. And, uh, you know, I, I played it at my dad's like 80th birthday or something. Wow. And, and it's like, okay, that I really need to practice for. And oh, I was so nervous. I was sweating profusely. It, but I'll tell you, the pressure of practicing that song, definitely a motivator. It's probably the most I ever practiced a musical instrument. Yeah. And that brings us to this idea of practice, right? So that would be the next step. Once you've realized you got to push beyond, you've set specific goals, then you need to focus on practice and practice intently, practice with purpose, and also practice with feedback, with high quality feedback from a coach. So I don't know how you did violin, but I'm sure you didn't just go in your room and start playing. Someone, I'm assuming, had to be there to help you, someone more knowledgeable than you to say, no, you're doing that wrong. Here, try doing this. It looks like this might be off. And so that kind of practice is generally what we don't do. Like I, I play golf. I'm not very good at it, but I go to the driving range. I take all my clubs. I try to hit it as hard as I can. I have fun. I probably hit through 50 balls in an hour and you know, feel real good about myself because I hit 20 good ones and I walk away. There's no coach giving me feedback. I'm not intently practicing the micro skills that I need to achieve mastery. I'm just kind of hitting random shots because it's fun. And so that's the difference between, you know, practicing intently with purpose deliberately with feedback from a coach and what most of us do when we try to learn something. So learning from the last rep and applying it to the next, and that's hard to do with just self-analysis. Yeah. And that's why coaches are so important. That's why teachers are so important. And then the last kind of overarching thing is you need to have a mental model of expertise. You need to have in your mind an idea of what you want to accomplish and what that looks like specifically. Like I can look at Steph Curry and say, that is how I want to shoot free throws. You can look at Yo-Yo Ma and say, that is what an expert cellist looks like. I'm going to watch him play. I'm going to hear him play and emulate that and have not just the specific goals to get there, but a mental model of what that expertise looks like. How does that actually work? You know, it's like, okay, I want to play cello. And I mean, Yo-Yo Ma, a true master. But when I begin, you know, I'll, I'll be super clumsy and it won't sound good. It's like, yeah, Yo-Yo Ma is what I have in mind, but I need to learn how to pull the bow across the string so it doesn't sound like a screech. How does having that mental model help me right now on just like the basic mechanics? Yeah. So we see that every day in our context with residents, right? So these doctors graduate med school and are awful and can't do anything <laughs> and we have to help them along the way, but they see their senior residents. And I'm sure you remember who the senior residents were when you were an intern. You looked up to them, you emulated them. They were a living mental model of what you wanted to become and that you knew if you worked at it and put the time in and did the studying that in four years, you could be like this person. And so not only does it enable you to, to know that that exists and what it looks like and what you want to go to. But it also gives you trust in the process to say, okay, if I commit to this work and I do this, I can become like that person. That's crazy. How cool is that? And I think when the, when the fourth years look back and the new interns start, they always say every year, they're like, dang, man, I was like that as an intern. Those guys don't know anything. But really they were. And that that's the good representation of what a mental model might be in our context. It's funny when you say that, I think of the guy who I tried to model myself on was this, actually, we stay in touch. His name is Neil Waldman. And he was a chief when I was an intern. He had 10 people around him. We're all yammering, asking him questions. And he's just standing there with his arms crossed and his head down, just listening, just processing. And each person that comes up to him, given a little pearl to push him on the way. And he was just so calm and just did everything with such a plum. And everything was such skill and it was right, you know, I mean, it was right to what we knew right then, right? If we look back now, the literature would have been, would have been uh, very different, but, but he carried himself with such a confident and calm way. It was like in the martial arts, there was this thing that you would strive to called peaceful confidence and that martial arts called Pyongan, peaceful confidence. And I looked at him, I said, that's the state I want to exist in. But I kept the mental model of him in my mind. So that when I was a senior resident, I tried to act like him, but I guess I needed to have that knowledge base in order to act like him and not just fake it because then you would just be harming people. Yeah. Without that, well, I would say mental model of him, without seeing him and knowing he exists or she, you can't quite get there. Like I could give you a lecture about, hey, you should stay calm in a resuscitation <laughs> to be an expert, right? But having a mental model of it is so much stronger than that. Before we get into some of your education research, I want to ask you about something that I heard about that, that kind of surprised me. And I'm curious as to what the downstream effects of this have been and are going to be. For those of you who have not gone through medical school, 
there are several board exams that you have to take in order to go to the next step. And the first one that you take is called step one. That's between your second and third years of medical school. And it's the basic stuff that you learn in the first two years and is graded. And it's kind of like the SAT of medical school. And you have this score and that score is something that can be used to evaluate apples for apples. Like, you know, you went to this med school and got these grades. You went to that med school and got those grades, but let's see how you did on the board exam. And, you know, now we can evaluate you equally, at least as far as how you know your clinical stuff from the first two years of med school. And it was, you know, it seemed to be a big deal when people be applying to med school and now it's gone to pass fail. And so many med schools also are pass fail. And it's like, okay, this seems like a small thing, but it also seems like it's going to be a big thing. It's a huge thing. It's like the biggest ripple to go through medical education in a long, long, long time. It made huge waves. There was lots and lots of chatter. And now we're kind of left to figure out what to do with it. Yep. So what's the thinking on this? So there's several different takes. And my take would be this. There's winners and losers in every every big decision like this. There's some people that are going to make out well. There's some people that aren't. I think in general, it's a good thing for medical student wellness. You know, the Basing your whole life, basically, like whether you can be a orthopedist or not on your performance on one exam on one day in your second year of medical school is asinine. But that's how the current system is. If you don't get a 257 on your boards, you're not going to get into your whatever ortho residency. Um, There are obviously exceptions, but that's the general rule. And I think that kind of pressure is unhelpful. Further, the way that the exam was developed was not to be used as a tool in residencies to differentiate between applicants. It was meant as an exam to assess competency in these basic science domains. And because it was like the only apples to apples comparison that residencies had, it kind of got bastardized into this tool that is used to say who's going to be a good orthopedist or not, who's going to be a good plastic surgeon or not. And there's no validity evidence for the test to perform in that way. It's great for a certifying board exam to say you have a certain level of knowledge, but it's not meant to differentiate people. So for those reasons, I think this transition is actually a good one. The problem is that now there is no apples to apples comparison, like you said. So two things will probably happen. One, residencies will rely much more on step two, which might just replace it. We hope not, but step two might just be a replacement for step one. I can't remember when I took step two. When is that? Step two is also in medical school and people take it at different times, but it's like step one, but much more clinically oriented. So people that are stronger clinically do better on that exam. It's the stuff you learn in years three and four in med school. Yeah, it's like stuff from your clerkships. And so not everyone requires a step two score before um, interview season. Some take it, some don't. You know, if you did really, really well on step one, the the thinking was, oh, don't take step two because you're fine. You can only make yourself worse. And if you did kind of okay on step one, people would say, ah, if you do better on step two, get that score in and and submit it to those residencies. But even then, that transition is probably a good one because we're shifting from the basic science test to a more clinical test, which is what we do because we don't do basic science every day. But then the, the other thing is that without a quote-unquote objective comparison, that's not getting into the problems with, with step one, but uh, without that objective comparison, people from less traditionally rigorous medical schools are going to suffer. You've got somebody who goes to medical school in the Caribbean who is amazing and a genius versus someone who goes to medical school at NYU who's barely scraping by. The person who goes to medical school at NYU is, I hate to say, it's going to have a leg up because they went to NYU. Yeah, absolutely. And in our residency program, we, we take DOs and international students and, and have had chief residents from those groups. And so, you know, I think we're a little bit ahead of the game in terms of recognizing holistically that good physicians don't all just come from Harvard and Stanford. But when push comes to shove and you have less data with which to compare people, I think the human tendency will be to fall back on those institutions and degrees that uh, may or may not confer ability to perform in residency, but make us feel better because they're stronger, I guess. I wonder if med schools that are pass-fail will start going to grades now so that there can be a ranking within them rather than, you got through it, good job. Yeah, our our school is pass-fail. And so I, I think the the rationale behind that is they want a collaborative environment, not a cutthroat environment during those first two years. And that they also think that the clerkship scores do differentiate people in ways that matter clinically, whereas maybe performance on 
genetics and biochemistry in uh, the first two years is less helpful. I wish my first years in med school were pass fail. They were, you know, it was hardcore A, B, C, D, E, F, no E. <laughs> and it added an unneeded degree of stress. So much stress, right? And then you're competing against your friends where you should all be learning together. You know, it's, it's funny. Also, I think back to all of the learning environments in med school, and this has nothing to do with, uh, you know, the board exam. Most of it was lecture, but we had this one small group seminar where we would dissect clinical cases with an attending. I remember pretty much every case from there and what we learned. And it was, I can remember this, this was when AIDS was really surging and, you know, nobody knew what to do. There were no treatments. And, you know, it was when cryptococcal meningitis was diagnosed with India ink stain. And how old are you, man? 51. (laughs) Because when I took hematology in med school, we had this, this old hematology professor come back and tell stories of what it was like in that HIV era or AIDS era when they were just first figuring everything out. Like, and, and she like regaled us with these stories of old school medicine. So sorry. Yeah. Those small group discussions were so much more conducive to learning than simply being spoken at by somebody in a, in a conference hall with, with a hundred poor med students in their fifth hour of mind numbing anatomy. Yeah. And the other big trend that we're seeing among medical schools of which uh, USC where I work is undergoing right now is shifting of those first two years from two years down to like 18 months. Uh And so a lot of schools, I would say many of the leading schools in the country have now condensed the basic sciences into 18 months rather than two years to get more clinical time and then to get more time after the clinical clerkships to actually do some of this stuff. Like you said, this deeper dives into clinical reasoning. Uh, and it's exciting because those of us for whom basic science is not our bread and butter, you know, getting to the clinical stuff and then looking back at the basic science stuff in that context is much stronger, like you said, than just getting the basic science. I would have loved to have taken anatomy as a second year attending. Oh, <laughs> <No>. dude, <laughs> right? You would look at the knee so much differently or the lumbar <laughs> spine so much, you know, like all these like, yeah. 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 I, I want to get into to some of your research and you've done a lot of research on podcasts and you know how people learn from podcasts with medical education it's not like they're peer reviewed like you could say well they're peer reviewed by the world because people listen to it and say mm, not really and some may give correct information some may not and then you know with any any podcast you're going to say stuff that's wrong and then you have to make corrections and it's really up to the individual host or champion to vet the information, to vet the guests, to do the research. And different people are going to do that to different levels. How do podcast listeners make credibility judgments about podcasts? Yeah, great question. And it's this question is not unique to medical education podcasts. I think you're seeing it much broader in a societal context with political speech, with Twitter and things like that. The whole fake news controversy how do we make sense of those things? It becomes particularly prescient for us because this is information that we might then go apply to a patient. And if we do something harmful, that's really high stakes decisions. And so we study this, we talk to residents and attendings and interview people and, and try to understand this. And I don't think we've completely cracked the code, but I think there are, there are several ways to think about it. In general, like you said, different podcasts or hosts or whomever vet their content differently. And I think what happens is residents over time get a sense of who does that well and who doesn't. And so they form general trust biases toward one podcast or another. Oh, I've listened to so-and-so talk for years and he seems to be a credible source. So I generally am going to trust his podcast. Or they listen to something new, someone's new on the scene or it's a different voice. They don't have that predisposition to trust. And so if they trust that podcast, then generally they're much more likely to believe what that person says. If they're skeptical about that podcast, then they're much less likely to believe what that person says and they go through a big process to determine that. And I think those initial trust versus not trust of this general entity comes from things like popularity, the credentials of the speaker, recommendations from attendings or friends, residents, uh, their history with the podcast, how long they've been listening, their familiarity what the format is like, what their website and show notes look like, the time, all of those things kind of help to form that initial impression before any word is even spoken. What about the content? After that initial kind of trust 
versus not trust of the entity decision, then it comes down to evaluating the content. And residents and attendings kind of put that content into several buckets. If it is core content, then they're much more likely to just agree with it and not really scrutinize it because core content hasn't changed significantly over the years. It's much less controversial. The basics of building blocks, fundamentals, that's in every textbook. Yeah, here's the anatomy of the foot. And this is the foot that this is the bone that fractures. And here's what the fractures are called. That's not really controversial. And most people generally give that a thumbs up. They also generally give a thumbs up if the content is congruent or agrees with what they already think. And this is a heuristic and bias that we see all over the media. But if I generally happen to agree with what you're saying, I'm going to be much less skeptical of it and just kind of give it the pass and say, yeah, yeah, he's right. He knows what he's talking about. Now, if it goes to this third bucket of it's a new thing they haven't heard before, or it's an opinion, or it conflicts with what I already know, then people really have to dig in and they go through this very interesting process that I haven't fully figured out yet, where they start to triangulate the arguments that are being made by the podcaster with a whole bunch of other things. It kind of goes into this like triangulation soup in their brain. I want to dissect that a little bit because I think about one of the most popular medical podcasts of all time, MCRIT. That would be what I would listen to driving to work. And his style is often his opinion of how things should be done. And It was, you know, a lot of people disagreed and disagree with him. They think he's crazy. You know, he describes himself as being on the bleeding edge. And it's like, this is just what I think is right. And I would listen to what he said and think, okay, that makes sense, even though it's someone's opinion. And that's the way I'm going to think. And that's the way I'm going to approach this. And people lived after those resuscitations and they did really well. It's like, oh, maybe if I did it another way, it would, you know, it would be just fine. I wonder why it was listening to him almost more than than anyone else who was speaking about the same stuff. It's like those are the mental processes and constructs of thinking that I'm gonna adopt. And when he says something, you know, I'll think about it, it's like, mm, does that make sense? I'm gonna do it that way. For the sake of argument, I'll go with you, but I don't think that you can fully remove yourself and your relationship with him from how you listen to him. Even if that relationship when you were a resident was one-sided, and even if you didn't really know him, quote unquote, in person, my research would show that you feel like you have a relationship with him because you hear his voice in your ear. He's going on your commute with you. He's sitting in the front seat next to you. I hadn't even thought of that. I thought like, oh yeah, here's here's Spock telling me the logical way to do things. No, it's like, oh, I, I feel like you are Mr. Miyagi and you're like connecting to my heart. And that, I would argue, uh, significantly impacts how you view the content. But say, say, put the relationship aside, put the socio-cultural context aside. You're right. MCRIT is controversial and MCRIT is opinion. And MCRIT would fall into that category where residents and attendings would tell us that they, they apply more scrutiny and, and they go, they, they think a little bit deeper about what, what Scott is saying before they take it up. And part of that is looking at the persuasive argument that he's making. Is he citing evidence? Is he using rhetorical techniques to persuade the audience? I would argue he is. And the paper that I'm currently writing, hopefully submitting tomorrow, gets into some of the rhetorical dimensions of these podcast features. But then what you're probably also doing is not just taking him at his word and going on your way. Like you said, you're reflecting on what this actually looks like when you apply it in clinical practice. You're thinking about the physiology that you learned in med school and whether what he says is congruent with the physiology that you understand. You're listening to other podcasts, you're reading other blogs, you're asking questions of your attendings, you're reading your textbook, you're going to grand rounds. And all of these other resources and other experiences form this soup through which you then interpret his argument. And so then you can come out of that and say, okay, that makes sense to me in light of all of these things, and I'm probably going to adopt it. Does it make a difference where, or maybe even when, you listen to a podcast? My old partner, The Godfather, it was his nickname. Oh my gosh. He's he's now in his mid-70s, works full-time. It's just the best doc. He would listen to podcasts on his laptop, sitting in a room with the book open, with looking at the show notes, versus I think... A lot of people listen to it in the car, so that's how I always listen to it, or working out or, or gardening or doing some other activity. 
Does it make a difference as far as retention or what you're getting out of it? Just when I thought I was out, they (laughs) pulled me back in. (laughs) So yeah, super interesting, right? I listened for years and still do on my bicycle commute to work. I ride my bike to work and I put one, one pod in my right ear and, you know, 45 minutes of delicious listening while I get my exercise in. And our research would support that so many people listen in context of commuting and exercising, also doing chores, random things like that. Very few people listen just sitting in the room focused like the Godfather, but some do. So there's all different literature all over the map in tension and psychology and kinesiology about how those activities impact our learning. Specifically to driving, studied that recently with Mike Gottlieb in Chicago. And we looked at whether listening while sitting in a room as opposed to listening on your commute to work would change the knowledge retention you got from that podcast. And that's being written up currently, but the spoiler is that we found no difference in the test scores. In fact, the test scores were so strikingly similar. It was like 70% versus 71%, and then like 54 versus 53. They were just almost identical on a cohort of, of 100 residents from all across the country. It was striking how much it was the same. Now, that could be explained by a bunch of different things, and I think there's some wrinkles in there. I think if you're driving in a busy city on a route that you don't know, your cognitive load could quickly be overwhelmed by reading street signs and watching out for, for pedestrians and not trying to hit Riddell on his bike. But if you're doing your old commute that you do every day for 15 years and you know where the stop signs are and the stoplights and you know when you're turning and when you're not, that's a mindless thing. And this theory of threaded cognition would posit that you're able to kind of thread that cognitive pathway in your mind such that it doesn't interfere with the other thing that you're doing. And so that might explain some of the results. But I've never heard that before, threaded cognition. Yeah, this guy, Salvucci, he's a psychologist who talks a lot about understanding cognition is the one who came up with it in like 2008 or something. And he kind of uses it as a, a theory to help understand why, quote unquote, multitasking or rapid task switching can be effective in certain situations. Because the data would show there's no difference. And cognitive load theory would say there should be a difference. And so I think they needed to come up with a theory to explain why that happens. And this Salvucci guy came up with it, one of them. Can you elaborate a little more on this threaded cognition? I'm so curious as to how that would work driving and listening to a podcast or working in a busy emergency department when there's all sorts of stuff going on and you are juggling so much. It's, it's basically a theory of concurrent multitasking, which says that streams of thought can be represented as threads and that you can hold those threads in mind without having to do the really heavy task-specific executive processes. And so it can predict how you would have interference or not interference when you're doing two behaviors at the same time. So if you are talking to a nurse while you are sewing up a simple interrupted laceration, this theory would posit that you can do both things at once and do both of them well because the sewing of the sutures is not taking the executive processes away from listening to the nurse. If it was a complicated laceration that required a tough dog ear suture in a gaping wound, and that same nurse is trying to talk to you, threaded cognition might predict that the multitasking behavior would cause interference and your performance would suffer because of the difficulty of that task. So there has to be a certain automaticity to some of the threads in order for them to exist concurrently with other threads. It's not that they need to be automatic. It's that they can't have overlapping architecture. So they need to fit within the housing world of cognition in different places. They need to require different resources in your brain, if that makes sense. So they studied driving and they said, okay, you drive and we'll let you drive on a very straight single lane, easy thing. And then we'll have you listen to the radio. We'll have you text on an iPhone and do other dangerous things. This is on a driving (laughs) simulator. And they actually found that driving performance on the easy single lane driving while listening to the radio was no different because they would argue those require different cognitive resources within the brain. They're in different parts of this architecture schema that they have. However, if they start putting pedestrians in and make the driving much more difficult, then the cognitive resources overlap with the radio listening in that architecture of theirs. And that's what causes the decrement in the task ability. Do you use that knowledge at work or in your life? You know, as as far as changing behavior, maybe it's with driving or with 
what you do as a physician or, you know, or, or, or something else? So we just got the data from this paper like a week ago. So I haven't yet, but that's a really interesting question. And I think the answer is I will. Traditionally, we've been taught that multitasking is bad. We're going to make errors if we do multiple things at once. But every ER doc who's ever worked in a busy clinical practice realizes that they're task switching all of the time, the whole shift through. And so for someone to say, oh, you shouldn't do that. You're going to make errors. I think that's too simplistic. And so I think what we can do is recognize when we're dealing with complexity, recognize when we need to slow down. There's a new model of expert performance from Carolyn Moulton about slowing down when you should. So maybe the the ability of the expert is to recognize when those cognitive resources are overlapping and at that point slow down, but yet still be able to function in that system one heuristic fast way for most of the shift. That's really a master skill. I'd never thought of that. Knowing when to slow down and knowing when, hey, I'm driving on one lane, I can text, listen to the radio, chew gum, and write my novel at the same time versus I just got to drive. Nothing else can happen. Yeah. And the way that she came up with this is by studying the operating room. And so she spent time observing surgeries and looking at these master surgeons and figuring out what is it that they do that's different from the novice surgeon. And what she found is those experts slow down at certain points in the operation that are very, very dangerous or cognitively burdensome. And they get very serious at that point. They shut out all of the other laughing and bantering that they've been doing while they're opening and getting their exposure, fully concentrate, and then go back to having a good time and playing the music. And I wouldn't know that because I don't work in the OR. So thankfully, she did that research. But that makes sense for us too. And so you know, we're having a good time on shift and we're interacting and smiling and friends with everybody. But then when it comes time to do that airway, the expert changes and slows down and concentrates and makes sure that they don't make a mistake. And I think that threaded cognition can speak to that in saying, as long as we know when our cognitive resources are starting to overlap, then we need to be careful. But prior to that, hey, it might work. We might be able to to work mistake-free at several things at the same time, given that they're not in the same architecture. I want to switch gears to gender bias. And I know you've recently done some research on this. There's There's been you know, a bit of research on this probably needs to be more specifically as it pertains to the evaluation of physician skills, physician ability. And when I've spoken with people about this, trying to you know, like sort out what, what's happening, it's such a hot button issue. It's almost like politics or some people say, no, the research is wrong. They're actually looking at this when they should be looking at that versus, of course it is. Of course there's gender bias. Why are you even asking? It's so glaringly obvious. Yeah. And I understand some of the confusion because a lot of the data that's come out has been mixed. There are definitely well done big studies in our specialty that show that women are rated differently than men, that they receive different scores, especially on procedures than men do. And I think most thoughtful people would stop and say, that's a problem. And we should probably figure out why that's happening. And most of us assume that it's from gender bias, whether that's implicit or explicit, we think it's probably a gender bias problem. But there exists the argument in a scholarly world that no, actually those ratings are accurate. And actually the women are worse at procedures for X, Y, or Z reasons. I think a person who makes that argument could say that that's because of gender bias, that they get fewer opportunities, or they don't get the same coaching and feedback, or they're less aggressive, or whatever people want to argue. But that possibility exists unless you can study the construct in a blinded way, because you can't really say, no, resident A male is better at procedures than resident B female, and say that that difference is due to gender bias, unless you take their genders away in the evaluation of the procedure. Does that make sense? Yes. So we tried to do that. And so with a group from Ohio, Mike Weinstock, who you know, and a group, we tried to figure out a way to film procedures in the sim lab where we, where we made them gender neutral. So we like double gloved people, double gowned them, took off all jewelry, only filmed from the elbow down and tried to create a perfect laboratory where an evaluator of a procedure can look at their hand movements and can look at the way that they put the needle in or put the chest tube in and say, yes, that was good. That was appropriate. That was right, right, right. And do that without knowing whether they're, uh, whatever their gender is. Um, in our study, we didn't have anyone identify outside of male, female. So we use a binary gender construct for our paper. And interestingly, again, this hasn't been published yet, but it's coming out. We found that there was no difference in the evaluation. We sent these out to a significant number of emergency medicine faculty all over the country, paid the money from the grant to sit and evaluate all of these videos of these procedures. 
And at the end of the day, we were quite surprised because we thought we'd see a significant difference, but we didn't. And so now we're stuck trying to figure out what to make of that because our experience would say, no, the women are just as good or better at procedures than the men are uh, on the whole. And so how do we make sense of a study that found no difference between when they evaluated them from the arms down versus from the whole body? In my experience, working with a lot of male doctors, a lot of female doctors, watching procedures, you know, partnering up during airways and chest tubes and complex lacerations, no difference at all. Nobody better, nobody worse. It's right. just, you know, it's right. individual dependent. I mean, and that's over decades. Mm-hmm. That's through training. That's through working in many, many different hospitals. But in training, I remember, well, I got away with stuff. Mm-hmm that the female residents would be castigated for. I, I didn't really appreciate it at the time because <laughs> I was getting away with it. Yeah. But looking back, it's like, oh, wow. It was subtle, but it was there. I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, I think we're working on making that case in the literature because maybe that will be helpful in convincing people because it seems like a lot of the other stuff we've tried hasn't. I can also speak to the qualitative comments question. We also studied that or in the process of studying that, we looked at all of the like written evals, you know, like when faculty get like a, what can this person do better? Or, you know, general fill in the blank. We qualitatively coded like 2000 or something, 1800 of those evaluations for our residents over many years. And then looked at what they were trying to target, like what milestone they were trying to speak to, like procedural competency or clinical knowledge, those kind of things. Uh, and then we analyzed based on gender of the evaluator and the evaluatee. And interestingly, what we found is that the male faculty comment on different things than the female faculty comment on, almost regardless of the gender of the resident. But female residents definitely significantly received more feedback about their patient-centered communication, which is like the milestone for soft skills, empathy with patients, much more so than the males. But that was the only domain in which male and female residents differed at our institution. But interestingly, the faculty focus on different things. What was the difference between the male and the female faculty? Oh, so male faculty focus more on procedures, airway management, professional values, and patient-centered communication, ironically. And the female faculty focus more on diagnostic studies, diagnosis, pharmacotherapy, disposition, multitasking, accountability, those kind of things. In my cursory analysis, it doesn't seem like those necessarily fit into, you know, specifically gendered roles. And so it's interesting to see over many years, over many, many thousands of evaluations that we found those significant differences. You've looked quite a bit at resident burnout. What do they see as their burnout experience? Maybe their feeling or where the hits are coming from that's leading to that burnout? Yeah. So there's tons of literature on burnout now and how prevalent it is and some of the causes. But what's been missing lately, I think, is just what you said. Like, how do how do residents actually experience it? Like, what does that mean? Oh, I'm burned out. What does that look like in our specialty in, in, in across medicine? And we found some interesting things, very interesting quotes from the, from the qualitative work that we did. This is with Dr. R.T. Jane. And we found that generally, like residents have this fatalistic view toward burnout. Like it's just an inevitable part of residency, which sucks because you're like, okay, I'm going to start this four-year thing and I know I'm going to burn out and be, you know, have mental health problems, be borderline suicidal, but it's just part of the deal. And that's really concerning for those of us who run training programs because like, that's not cool. Like that that's an inevitability of the training. I think that's really dangerous. They also note how burnout really like calluses their experiences with patients and patient suffering. Erodes the therapeutic physician patient relationship. We had quotes of like of residents saying they were listening to patients talk about how they have diabetes and their toes falling off and they're going blind. And they'd be sitting there in their mind thinking about how can I get this person out of here? Oh my gosh, why did she wait six years to come in? What the hell is she doing? And having these like snap moments where they're like, oh my gosh, what happened to me? This is a patient who is suffering and going blind from this disease and I couldn't care less. And all I'm thinking about is getting them out. And that was really hard to read, but I think important to share because I think if we're all honest, it's not just residents. I think a lot of us struggle with that from time to time about the fatalistic aspect of it. I've burned out many, many, many times over the years and, you know, legit burnout. And each time it it wasn't pleasant. And I felt like it was just at the 
limits of tolerance, but it always led to a change of something. Either one of them led to podcasting. Yeah. You know? it's, it's like, okay, this, I, need to, I need to change my focus on what I'm doing rather than just punching the clock and going in every day. I'm going to create this thing. Or I'm working in a place that's really just killing me. I need to work in a different environment. And each one of those was a level up. You know, sometimes it was within me, I need to change my focus on things. And sometimes it was, I need to make a big change, either change the place that I work, how I work it, or go someplace else or create something new. And like each real creative burst was preceded by burnout, was preceded by being burnt out. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think the unfortunate thing is that residents don't have that option, you know? They're stuck for four years, five years, three years, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they can do side gigs, you know, and, and creative outlets, but they really can't pivot um, with the autonomy that, that you are able to pivot with. And so it's interesting to hear your experience through several of those transitions. And I don't think that residents have the hindsight to be able to say, okay, out of this might come something good the way that you have because you've gone through it and moved past it before. Totally true. I had burnout in residency as well, just like those residents are describing. And I let that carry into my first job. And I didn't really acknowledge it, say, okay, this is an issue. Here's the issue I'm dealing with. It was suck it up. And the answer was work harder. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. And it just just didn't fly. So, the residents that we studied described burnout as like a pervasive negativity, an emotional fragility that kind of pervades both work and their social environments. Did you experience it that way? How did you experience burnout? Well, I experienced it as increasing stress with increasing volume at work. There was definitely a a callousness that developed. And frankly, it, it took a bad outcome to kind of slap me in the face and say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not the way I want to be. It was hidden underneath a veil of extreme confidence Hmm. of portraying that like, there is no problem I can't solve. When really, I mean, that's the worst Dunning-Kruger I could imagine, you know, just coming out fresh from residency when you're (laughs) you're super, super nervous, you know, saying, oh, I got this. And when I've seen residents come out of residency with that, who actually believe that, they're super dangerous. Mm. And- One thing I did when I was a couple years in is I made sure that each resident that came out, this isn't answering your question, but it's just the the path that it went. Each resident that came out that I work with, I made it really clear to them that this first year out was their fellowship in being a doctor. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is when you're really going to learn. You know, you've been through all of this hard stuff. Residency is hard, man. I mean, it's just put you through the crucible. But when you get out, it's a totally different thing. And so it's like, okay, you've been through this whole thing. You've got some good knowledge. Now you're going to figure out how to be a doctor and how to do doctoring. And that involves all this other stuff, like the stress, the um, emotional fragility, the negativity. And let's talk about that stuff. Let's just talk through this. Let's just talk through these cases. Let's just talk through the bad cases because invariably things are going to happen that are challenging for you. This is your fellowship. Don't expect right now your first year out to be all of a sudden you have mastery. It's kind of like getting your black belt in karate. All of a sudden you got this black belt. You've been doing it for four years. It's just like residency, three years, four years. And it's like, okay, now you're an expert. Well, sort of. Now you just have the ability to really become an expert but you're far from it. I don't know if this martial arts analogy is getting too esoteric because you can get your second degree, your third degree, your fourth degree, you know, really mastering the skill. Doesn't answer your question of the fragility and the negativity, but yes, I absolutely had that. And there would be points when internally I would feel myself snap. Like if someone was really working me over for opioids or was being passively aggressive or just like a difficult person or a difficult patient, it's, it's funny, a friend of mine once said, if you're finding that everyone is difficult, it's the problem is <laughs> It's probably you. Yeah. That's sort of a, a meandering response to what you asked, but that's just how I dealt with it in one thread. But that brings up a really interesting gap in the medical education literature, which I think 
I or we or whoever should study next, is that all these studies are on medical students and residents. But what happens when you graduate and then all of a sudden you're out in the world and we no longer really understand why you burn out? I, I think we have ideas. We don't understand how burnout affects you differently when you're not in the structured residency context. And it's a really big unknown, I think, to us formally in the scholarship about what happens to burnout after residency. What do you think people lose when they leave residency? It's a different topic than we're talking about, but what's the biggest hit you see them taking? Is it that they lose that small unit cohesion? Is it that they lose the structured learning, the supervision, the safety net of you know, someone always having the buck stop with them? I think it's a combination of all of that. I think there's definitely a role for feeling unequipped and feeling stupid. You know, you only have three or four years of training and all of a sudden you're expected to do this specialty that requires you to know everyone else's specialty and you're by yourself and you just can't know everything. I mean, think about how much we've learned. I learned in the last five years since I've been out of residency. There's just such a huge amount of growth that happens of continued learning during those years. And so we shove people out, not fully equipped. I'm not saying residency should be longer. You can't keep people in training for 10 years, but you're definitely learning year by year until, I don't know, whatever year you kind of reach that pinnacle. And so that feeling of not knowing, it's just like being a resident again and shipped off to the OBGYN rotation where you show up and you're like, okay, I'm a good person and I work hard and I know most of this stuff, but there's going to be things I don't know here. And then you feel stupid and that doesn't help you feel better. I think also the the social milieu is so, so, so important to 95% of us. So much happens in that context of sharing cases, of debriefing, of discussing, of learning. There's so much value in that. I also think there are unique factors to the practice of emergency medicine, community hospitals across America that push us beyond a speed that is safe and, and comfortable and good for patients. When I think about the time as a trainee, you truly have a sense of a team. You know, it's like you, you have such a common experience and, you know, those stories that you tell of that common experience, it's like, you know, people who have been in combat together and they tell these things like only they together have real understanding of that experience. And that is such a precious thing. Well, your residency mates, when you see them 20 years later, I can attest to this. It's like not a second has passed. I had lunch mm -hmm. with one of my co-chiefs last year at ASAP and it was like nothing had passed. It was like we picked up our same conversation. Also, when you are in a meeting with your team, you're not talking about money. You're not talking about all of these oppressive, stupid, freaking metrics that most of them mean nothing. You know, really uneducated metrics from administrators that do nothing to improve the quality of your care. There are metrics that can improve the quality of your care. No doubt about it. It's just not the ones that are being shown to you or, or that are being measured. And, you know, all of those aspects really differentiate that residency experience because, you know, the motivations of your group, I've, I've been in one group actually that was seen more like a residency class. I'm gone from that group now, but we're still super tight. And when I, when I go back there, we all get together. And, and, and interestingly, we were employees. I'm not saying that the employee model is desirable because, you know, you definitely lose a lot of autonomy. But the meetings were never about like our money or our corporation. It was always about education and improving care. You know, granted, it was, you know, I was remunerated a lot more when I was in a private group, mm -hmm. like, I don't know, three times more. Wow. Yeah, uh, at least. I mean, it was, it was shocking. But uh, that core d'esprit was nowhere near the level that it was. Interesting. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. What the, the financial component, the financial component does so much also to a group's image of itself. I know of several groups that are really high reimbursed groups and just see themselves as, well, we are the flagship because we're reimbursed the most. And hmm. it's like, and, and when I look at some of the decisions that are made or some of the practices, it's, well, my friends, yes, <laughs> as Borat would say, that is not the best practice. Uh, not so nice. Anyway, sort of, sort of a rant and unrelated to our, our conversation. I think it's related. I just work in an academic environment and I just love the focus being on learning and growing 
and we worry much less about money. And I think that contributes a lot to my wellness. Your dad's doing something, right? Isn't, isn't he like a kind of a, a coach that recreates sort of that core d'esprit in, yeah. in groups of physicians? Yeah. It took me like a lot of years to understand what he actually does. He does it with CEOs okay, and from kind of all different industries. And he meets with them one-on-one like once a month and then also meets with the whole group of them once a month, all 17 of them together in a, in a boardroom all day. And I, th- you know, hearing him talk about it, it's very similar to, I think what, what we are thinking about here in medicine is that these CEOs go out on their own and they're the big dog and no one can talk to them and no one can stand up to them and they don't have peers and they're kind of the leader and they have to be strong and they're isolated in that sense. And it's very similar to an emergency physician working in a smaller practice setting. And he has found over the 15 years he's been doing this, that just bringing those people together to talk about the issues they're dealing with, even though they're in different industries, but as business people has been extremely rewarding for them. And I've met several of them and they, they'll talk to me about, oh my gosh, your dad is so great the way he gets us all together. And this group has changed my life. And he tells stories of so much life change that happens because this community of practice and what we would call it in education gets together to keep that social aspect alive. Jeff, this is your first time on Stimulus. Hopefully not the last. Appreciate you coming on the show. And man, I learned so much. I learned so much about learning. I can't wait to explore this stuff more. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's always fun to chat with you about this kind of stuff. And that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one coaching, to get complete show notes for this or any other episode, sign up for our newsletter, and find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Maybe not, maybe it's happening. Just head over to our website, robwarman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.